It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Good evening and welcome to Moment of Truth. I am your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. On today's show, my guest is Duke Redbird. I could introduce Duke as the artist and elder who has a 40-foot pontoon houseboat at Ontario Place that is covered with artwork done by himself and muralist Philip Cote, which is called Wigwam Chichimung, or Big House Canoe. And it's also an Indigenous interpretative centre and where he will share elder perspectives with the public until October of this year. But I think that introduction would fall far short of the man sitting next to me. Dr. Duke Redberg is much more than just an artist. He's a poet, painter, broadcaster, filmmaker, keynote speaker, and has vast cultural knowledge. In his early career, Duke served as the Vice President of the Native Council of Canada in 1975 and as President of the Ontario Métis and Non-Status Indian Association in 1982. He gained attention in the media and mainstream through his understanding and Indigenous interpretation of Marshall McLuhan's messages long before most people could get their head around the medium is the message. Duke also worked on a government report looking to establish Métis rights when Jean Chrétien was the Indian Affairs Minister. That's a while back. He is an intellectual known in academic circles as a polymath or someone of encyclopedic learning and as a pathbreaker, someone of great vision and experience who is both brave and cautious, who can see far into the distant to lead and who can also see very close up to the ground beneath his feet so that we don't stumble. Dr. Duke Redbird received his Master of Arts in Interdisciplinary Studies from York University in 1978 and his doctorate from OCAD University in 2013. And did I mention his mentor, Chief Dan George, recited one of his poems in a TV film entitled I Am the Red Man? I could go on, but please allow me to warmly welcome my very special guest to the show today, Dr. Duke Redbird. Welcome. Well, miigwech, David. It's great to be here. Uh, <clears throat> it's quite an introduction. and <laughs> I um, think back on uh, 80 years now uh, that uh, I just had my 80th birthday oh. uh, last March. And uh, so uh, I was born in 1939, just before the Second World War started. So um, I went. I uh, had a childhood in foster homes growing up in the in the 40s, which was a very difficult time for everybody in the world, but particularly for Indigenous people. And then the 50s came along, and um, things started to break uh, loose a little bit. But it was still very uh, very tough on in the Indigenous uh, communities right across. And then the 60s arrived. And there was a great movement amongst the young, upwardly mobile, uh, hippie generation who um, uh, were radicalized in a way uh, about uh, uh, the world that they didn't want to continue, the one that they inherited. They wanted to create a new one, and they were coming to the indigenous community for some insight in uh, what might be the good path to take. So that was the beginnings of my, uh, uh, I guess, activism mm. was around that time. Mm. Now, when you mention uh, growing up, your community Sogging First Nation, I believe. That's correct. I was born on the Sogging First Nation, uh, but I was um, uh, orphaned. Uh, a fire uh, took my mother's life when I was 13 months old, and I was put into foster homes in the Children's Aid Society and and went through a series of foster homes and it was a very difficult time. And in those days, back in the, uh, uh, during the Second World War, uh, there was um, a lot of rationing going on. Uh, in fact, everybody had to have ration, ration uh, tablet cards and uh, often Native children were uh, fostered into families so that they could get access to the extra rations that came with the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we hear stories about those kind of things. And, of course, we've heard plenty of stories about the Children's Aid Society and foster homes and Indigenous people in those uh, over over the years. We've heard a lot about mm-hmm. that recently, in fact, as well. It's still an ongoing issue. It is an ongoing issue, and it's too bad because... Uh, 
there is a, a simple solution, and that solution, in my view, is to uh, have a guaranteed annual income for everyone and uh, allow families to uh, raise their own children rather than farming them out to foster homes who make a pretty good living uh, taking in foster children. And they they do it under the rules and regulations of, you know, uh, having one one room for each child, and they uh, create uh, certain uh, conditions that are that have to be uh, lived up to, which are sort of middle class uh, ideas. But indigenous people uh, aren't um, uh, thinking in that respect; they're thinking in terms of family. And the problem is that there's no such thing uh, in the indigenous community as a single mother. Mm. They don't exist. When the welfare check comes in, there's a cousin, a brother, a a boyfriend, a father, an uncle who come to get uh, a share of the uh, welfare check. So we need to change the system uh, so that uh, uh, our children can be uh, fostered by their own families and not uh, taken away and put into uh, two other homes. Do I understand correctly that you also attended residential school? I didn't, no. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No. Okay. Um, and were you, were you brought into, did you always stay in Ontario, or did you live outside of the province? I was always in Ontario, uh, but at the time, uh, of course, uh, they, they didn't, um, I was what was known as a temporary ward of the, of the Children's Aid Society because, uh, thankfully, my, my father wouldn't allow me to be put up for adoption. Mm. So I managed to get back with my family when uh, I was 16 years old, and I was able to uh, re, re, get reunited. But it was a long uh, 15-year period uh, when I was... Um, uh, separated from my uh, family and hence from my culture as well. I, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. Now, did, were you able to reestablish connection with your family and, and get back to your community? So w- from that hiatus, that when the par- time when you were apart and, and when you finally got back to them at age of 16, had, did you know much about it prior to that? Did you, were you aware... I, I was very much aware that that I was uh, 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 indigenous. And I was I, I was uh, uh, treated uh, as though I had this serious handicap mm. and uh, would never amount to anything uh, 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 unless uh, somebody took pity on me. Mm. And it was uh, my experience; nobody did take pity on me. So. Uh, uh, according to that uh, way of thinking, I, I I didn't have a chance to uh, to uh, be successful in a dominant culture. You're listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host David Moses, and my guest today is Duke Redbird. Uh, Duke, I think you also got into film and writing as well, didn't you? That's right. The um, uh, the only access for uh, an indigenous person in my day or uh, nowadays uh, to a uh, prominence in a dominant culture is through the arts. Uh, that opens up doors uh, because, remember, when the Western Europeans arrived here, when the settlers arrived, they had four motivations for getting up in the morning. It was money, power, self-preservation, and romance which includes family and the arts. But the indigenous people in the Americas before the settlement, we only had two motivations to get up in the morning, and that was self-preservation and the arts. So money and power wasn't part of our uh, reality before 1492. Our reality was associated with uh, uh, self-preservation, understanding the land and and our environment, uh, putting a roof over our head and feeding ourselves and raising our families. And uh, we expressed our our capacity for human imagination through the arts. We, we had dance. We had 
we had innovation, we had creativity, we had incredible uh, world over here. But what we didn't have was institutions of power, and we didn't have money. We didn't have an alphabet, and so we didn't have writing and money. These two motivations that the Western European culture, the Europeans brought to the Americas, was never shared and continues not to be shared with the indigenous people of Canada. We are allowed to have all the arts that we want and self-preservation. Yeah, if you can make a living and put a roof over your head. These are things that we are... We are uh, uh, engaged and and welcomed into, and but, don't and don't forget bingo and casinos. <laughs> but no, uh, the idea of the casino and the bingo is, if you look at the distribution of the money that's made in the casinos, it does not go to the indigenous people. It's owned by ballet. Mm. Uh, Bally is, uh, owns all the casinos and everything that's in a casino. What we get from the casinos is employment mm. and uh, some uh, dividends which go to the particular community that the, ca- that the casino is on. Uh, the bingos, of course, uh, is uh, money-making profit of, uh, that at one time the churches operated the bingos and Yes, there was always a winner on every game, but for every game that that somebody won, there was a hundred dollars that went someplace else. So we were never introduced or invited to share in confederation, and we were never invited to share in the uh, the the institutions of power and money, but. We have a lot of great artists in our community, and that was my entree and the entree of anyone else uh, in our indigenous community who could demonstrate that they had a talent in the arts. There was an opening. So did you, through that process, make a connection to say, hey, I, I can get some of my thinking to start, try and, try and uh, reach people outside the indigenous community on trying to educate them or, or swing them over or, or try to raise awareness of our issues through this process? Well, uh, that's, uh, that's one way to do it. If, if, if it's, uh, uh, I, my hope was that if I could demonstrate to the, to the body politic, if you like, uh, that there was real serious issues in Canada in relation to Indigenous people and that uh, demonstrate to them that we had the answers to all of these problems uh, that we would be invited in as uh, equal partners Mm. in solving the problems. What I found out was because I talked to uh, a former deputy minister of Indian Affairs in Ottawa, and I was sitting at his desk, and I was saying, do you have any idea how many suicides there are in our community? Uh, Do you realize uh, how much poverty there is? And he says, Duke, Duke, hang on. He says, look at behind me. And behind his desk was a whole shelf of of, uh, papers and books and everything. He said, we have the best researchers in the government. We know all that. He says, we know everything that you're telling them. Of course we do. He said, but we can't do anything for you until you people persuade the dominant culture to have the political will to make the changes. And I said, how, do you, how am I going to do that? He says, well, you can try to organize. Or, you know, uh, he didn't really have a good answer. But he told me right there that there was no political will in our government or our collective Canadian consciousness to solve these problems. And therefore, if there's no political will, nothing will get done. And we continue to see that. That's correct. It seems to be that way. Unfortunately, I, w- I was hoping that 
that with the liberal government when they were elected, uh, when Trudeau came in and he made so many uh, promises, but the handwriting was on the wall when our justice minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, was uh, dismissed from cabinet because she spoke truth to power, and I realized that we really haven't made any progress at all. Uh, in my day, when I spoke truth to power, I was called a, 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 a raving a radical agitator uh, sure. uh, and was dismissed as being irrelevant. But here was a justice minister, and even at that level, Jody was uh, dismissed as uh, the wrong uh, voice to speak mm. truth to power. But, but at the same time, you've always been a person of of positivity. Yes. So after after this time has passed and the things that you've seen, uh, do you still hold that hope forward? Do you still bring that and hope for the future? I do. I do indeed because... Uh, technology is moving everyone toward a uh, future at the speed of light that they don't even understand what's coming, except the indigenous people are, have, are best prepared to uh, engage the future far more than the dominant culture. Now, you made, a, you made a comment to that effect long before the 21st century arrived, if I'm not mistaken, about how you believe that as technology advances and as we move into this this re-indigenize sort of a, a world that we're going to be living in kind of thing? Is that... A re-tribalized Retribalized thing. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. Can you, can you help explain that to what you mean by that and, and how that how you see that working? Well, what, what's happening is that right now uh, our our technologies uh, and computers are based on a, on a, on a sequential uh, uh, programming called zero one mm. which is what our computers and and, and all our, all our technologies today are are using zero one yes switching a um, a switch back and forth so you can imagine as though you were taking a coin and flipping it uh, back and forth turning it from zero one heads tails heads tails heads tails but the new uh, uh, quantum computing, that is being developed and is going to be here within a year uh, is taking the coin instead of flipping it heads and tails, it'll be putting it on its edge and spinning it so that there will no, never, we'll no longer be able to identify a zero or a one. It could be both. It could be either, or it could be more. It's quantum computing. Mm -hmm. It's developing algorithms that are that are so complex and so big it's like it's like the layering of the universe on top of universes it's what we look at when we look at the cosmos at night when we look up at the stars what our people were doing for a hundred thousand years on this side of the world we were looking at the stars and we were we were contemplating the cosmos the way we are now contemplating the new quantum computing of the future we we are more than prepared for that kind of world because our indigenous languages are verb-based. They're not noun-based. We are we have uh, in our languages themselves, they're, they're, um, uh, they, they, they roll with, with action, language that can incorporate constant flow, constantly new ideas. Uh, uh, our capacity for innovation and creativity and imagination is beyond imagination. And the, and the, the uh, Western cultures that have been uh, uh, applying some of our lens uh, to their technologies are following along because it's very cybernetic. What, what, what the indigenous lens is very cy uh, cybernetic. I, I think of it as... Uh, if you think of film and television, okay, film is a series of still pictures run across the lens of our reality that gives the appearance of motion. But there is no motion in a, in, in a motion picture. It's all still frames. Mm -hmm. run at 24 frames a second across our reality. 
Television, on the other hand, is picture always happening, movement, light movement, 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 that gives the appearance of stillness. Mm. So when the when the Europeans arrived, they were coming with their still pictures uh, uh, run across their lens, and they called that progress and development. It looked like it, but they looked at us, and and our world was going to. Uh, uh, at the speed of light, but we were giving it a sense of stillness so we could incorporate it into our reality, and they didn't think we were doing anything. In fact, it was just the opposite. In fact, our people were engaging the environment as an information platform, which when when uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was asked uh, what the future of astrophysics was, he said, the judge, jury, and final arbitrator of all truth is nature. Duh. That's what we've been telling everybody <laughs> since, the, since they arrived in 1492. <laughs> Duke, that's very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. It makes me think of a story uh, I actually did a while back uh, with someone I know from Six Nations who uh, who said, you know, um, that indigenous people had the first uh, form of, of, um, of uh, digital technology, uh, zero one kind of thing, which was smoke signals off on off on yeah. same kind of a kind of a process Morse code, same kind of thing. sort of. well, that that was that was what the American cavalry thought mm. that we were doing. Mm. They had the Morris Code, mm. and they noticed that, 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 that the indigenous people uh, were using smoke signals mm. uh, to convey information. Guess what? There wasn't a Morris Code in the smoke signal at all. It was simply a horizon. On the horizon, you'd see a smoke signal go up, and that rem- that would gi- would give you the signal to get off your horse or whatever you were doing and meditate. And the messages were coming uh, telepathically. It's called nowadays the American government and others are are uh, involved in trying to find out how we did it. And it's called remote viewing. Mm. But that was something that that the indigenous people had before they were taken into residential schools and having it squashed out of them. Mm. So it wasn't a puff of smoke. This, this, was, this idea was, was, was uh, generated by uh, the uh, army that couldn't figure out how these smoke signals were operating. But now in a, in a, in a modern technological cybernetic world, we know exactly how they were uh, functioning, and we are going in that direction. There is going to be a day in the future when all of us will be using the full capacity of our human brain. Because why? Why? What is the reason we're not uh, using it now? Is because the a lot of what the human brain does is take care of our bodies and keep us alive. Mm. But if we're healthier then the brain doesn't have to spend as much time fighting off disease and 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 uh and and other functions of 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 the human body what's a human body for anyway it's simply to move the brain from one place to another with this uh uh capacity that we have when a human brain with our with our um, uh the, the chemistry, imagine it's chemistry that is developing the imagination. And from that chemistry of our brain, the imagination gives us the capacity to invent technology. I mean, we were there the day we were born. Hmm. We were already there the day we were born. But children get it immediately removed from them. Mm. A little child is two years old. They're exploring. They're like little scientists going all about their world, and they're they're like sponges soaking up information. And what are the parents saying? Stop that. Don't do that. You're getting into mischief. You're going to hurt yourself. This is not the indigenous way. 
the indigenous way was to allow the children to explore their environments to the uh, to to the fullest that they could. They were like sponges. Even our our medicine circle was above. You come into the world and you use your eyes and your senses and everything like a sponge. And then when you learn language, you listen. And then when you listen long enough, you remember. And when you get to be my age, you share. That's the circle of life. Mm. And that's what we were doing forever. Duke, fascinating. And you make me think of so many things that we could expand on, but I think it's time to take a break. So we're going to take a pause, and we will be right back on Moment of Truth with Duke Redbird. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest today on the program is Duke Redbird, also known as Dr. Duke Redbird. And uh, he has been uh, giving us some challenging thoughts in the first part of the show today. Uh, just before we took a break, he actually was talking about things that people are motivated to get up in the morning to do. He talked about indigenous people and what the motivations for them were and and the Europeans. And when you take money and power out of the, out of the equation, it allows us to focus on all those other uh, higher intellectual processes. Yes, uh, um, and it was evident when, when the... Uh when the Europeans first got to the Americas, they found a world here hmm. uh, because there was no uh, institutions of power. And what I mean by that, no political parties, no synagogues, no churches, no temples. Uh, there were no universities because we didn't have a written language. Therefore, we didn't have libraries. We didn't have uh, schools. Uh, we didn't uh, have um, uh, lawyers. Uh, we didn't have parliaments. Uh, we didn't have kings. We didn't have courts. Uh, we didn't have magistrates. We didn't have judges. We didn't have police forces. We didn't have taxes. Uh, we uh, we didn't um, uh, have uh, uh, factories. Uh, uh, so what kind of world did we have? We had a world uh, where... Uh, uh, all of those uh, were were missing. We didn't have armies. We didn't have uh, factories making armaments. We didn't. Uh, we we clothed ourselves. We housed ourselves. We raised our families. We healed ourselves. We engaged in uh, the uh, business of understanding the information platform that was offered to us by the universe called the Mother Earth. It was quite a wonderful place when you think of it that way. Uh, it was so wonderful, in fact, that when word got back to Europe that there were peoples living in harmony with, with the uh, environment, they started writing about it to the point where, where uh, Voltaire, Rousseau, Montague, these uh, other uh, people that were exploring the indigenous people, and they, they said, well, these are the original uh, people of, of the earth. They, they must have been what Adam and Eve was like, the noble savage. That's what they called us, the noble savage. And sometimes I wonder if they didn't get the word savage from the French word savoir, which means to know, mm. knowledge. Mm. Because as it's come down into the English language, it's, it's been uh, denigrated to an, uh, to an insult of, mm -hmm. of sorts. But if you find the uh, epistemology of the word, we find out it could go to savoir mm. instead of mm. uh, another place of, uh, of representing mm. somebody that's uh, not civilized. Mm. And when you think of civilized, what does that mean? It simply means urban. Somebody who's urban and somebody who's rural. Civilized people are, are, are living in cities and mm. uncivilized people are living in, 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 the, in nature. Mm. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. That shouldn't be considered an insult. Even It should be considered, wow, he's uncivilized. That means mm. he isn't uh, contaminated by all the... Uh, evils that go on in a civil society. So we should take those notions 
to be uh, virtues and not uh, uh, insults. Mm. Speaking uh, and sort of expanding on that a little bit, the global village idea. You, you know, you I think you had some interesting uh, views on the global village idea, even in terms of how uh, people now dwelling in apartments uh, uh, and the uh, and the cliff dwellings. I believe is what you kind of related that to. Well, that was back. Uh, that was early on. I uh, that was like. Um, uh, 50 years ago mm. when I was talking about that. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was suggesting that if you looked at, a, at a, in the southwest, a Pueblo mm-hmm. built by the indigenous people of the southwest, they were apartments. Yeah. And they were, they, their skyline of a Pueblo looks like the skyline of any modern city. Mm. They're, they're just... Uh, Structures with flat roofs and and apartments. Mm. So I I was suggesting that that as technology moves us toward a re uh, a tribalization process of the entire globe, uh, the uh, the universe, we are going to relate to one another the way you do in a village, which is which is what uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, uh, suggested. The global village. He mm-hmm. coined he coined this idea, and I also thought maybe uh, it might uh, in a in an indigenous world it might be a, a globe of villages, uh, and in some respects that idea is maybe closer to what we are coming to now because we are finding that people are siloing themselves in. Um, uh, uh, a village, but that village could have its members scattered all over the world. It doesn't. Their neighborhood could be uh, everywhere on Earth except where they're sitting. Mm. I it, to sort of explain this a little bit even clearer. I'm in Starbucks every morning having my coffee. There are people in Starbucks sitting with their iPads or their laptops. They're communicating with all kinds of people all over the world, but not one of them is communicating with anybody in Starbucks. <laughs> so they, each one, each individual has their own neighborhood of, uh, of uh, their village. But it's scattered everywhere and not necessarily in the neighborhood or the apartment building that they actually dwell. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. That's uh, very interesting. Uh, we mentioned earlier that you're, you are from the, the Saugeen uh, First Nation, and uh, that's up uh, Lake Huron, is it not? Yes, it's uh, just uh, at the bottom of the Bruce Peninsula. It's, uh, it's right on uh, Lake Huron. Beautiful um, area. It was uh, uh, part of the, uh, uh, I think the the Robertson Huron uh, Treaty uh, um, area. Mm. Right, um, and some of the most spectacular sunsets you'll ever see. <laughs> That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an absolutely stunning uh, part of the province. I think if anyone ever gets a chance to go up there, it's a... well. The Bruce Trail is, mm-hmm. uh, is 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 very very popular, mm-hmm. and uh, and there again is nature is uh, existing next to the Bruce Power, mm-hmm. the nuclear power plants, mm-hmm. all that all that energy that's being developed there is is um, uh, uh, threatening the very environment in which is providing the power. Uh, the uh, communities up there, and Saugeen being one of them and, and others, uh, are very concerned about the nuclear waste and where is it going to be uh, deposited? Are they looking at indigenous lands? Mm. to uh, bury all that nuclear waste? 
or uh, are, are they going to come to an accommodation where indigenous people get to have some say about where uh, this uh, waste that's being generated and providing power for Ontario? Uh, keeping in mind that Bruce Power never got permission or consultation with the Saugeen uh, community to build uh, power stations in the first place. And that was one of the things that they should have done. And the Indigenous people, uh, Cape Croker and Saugeen and Kettle Point, all those places, should have been invited to the table when the plans were being developed about nuclear power in the in the Bruce uh, uh, region. You're listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and this is Element FM. My guest today is Duke Redbird. So, Duke, I guess that was part of the Sogging Territory, yes? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, negotiations going on right now about uh, uh, even uh, class action mm. uh, that uh, for the waters that are being contaminated uh, around the uh, Bruce Peninsula. So um, there's a lot of work to do up there in, 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 in that regard. I personally am not involved uh, other than as a voting member of the Saugeen Band, uh, but I try to keep my, uh, uh, you know, my uh, antennae out to see what's, what's going on. But uh, we have great leaders up there, uh, and uh, young people are, are taking uh, charge, and uh, I'm sure they'll come up with, uh, with uh, right answers as we, as we move along. So, can we talk a little bit about your your poetry then? Um, what came first for you in terms of being an artist? The poetry, the painting, uh, what came first? What started to develop? And, and when did that start to develop for you? Uh, poetry uh, started very, uh, very early uh, uh, when, I, when I first uh, be- began to... Uh, uh, read and, and write, uh, I had, uh, uh, I learned to read before I went to school. So I was, uh, I, re- I remember uh, clearly the first two words that I read in, uh, in the English language. Uh, and I would have been about maybe three years old at the time. Uh, and what happened is, uh, in those days, the uh, uh, milk used to be delivered by uh, uh, horse and uh, and uh, milk wagon, and there was a maple tree in the yard where I was living, and it, and it was almost exactly the way the picture of the maple tree was on the on the side of the dairy because it was called Maple Dairy. And when I saw the alphabet, the maple dairy and the tree, it clicked into my brain at three years old that those, those uh, alphabet letters said maple dairy because everybody talked about, well, the maple dairy will be here. When that clicked in, it was almost like uh, a flood. I could read, and I never went to school to learn how to read, but I could read. Putting uh, those those things together wherever I saw science or whatever. And interesting enough about that is that my first job that uh, I worked on when I got out of school was a sign painter. <laughs> I could paint signs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was good at it. I was only 16 years old, but I, and when I came to Toronto, uh, I could make a good living uh, painting signs and show cards. I was just a kid. So I, I wasn't um, uh, uh, challenged by being poor or not having a job or not having a way to make a living. So therefore, I didn't have to go down a, uh, a, a path that that would have been detrimental. Mm. I was able to actually mm. make a really good living doing something 
that was easy for me to do. Mm -hmm. And it only took uh, uh, some paint and a couple of brushes. And I, I remember when I was a kid <laughs> going along the street and I'd see a sign that needed repainting this. This was always great in the springtime because in the springtime, uh, signs would be peeling and so on. And I'd just walk in and say, could I repaint your sign for you? And I had more work than I than I didn't actually I, I could do, <laughs> and so uh, so that moment of of recognizing the alphabet and reading uh, took me to another place to actually uh, turn it into a way to make a living. Mm. You know, as you describe that story, I I'm not sure what what is happening inside my own brain, but that connection, that visual and and the letter connection that you, you were able to make at age three, it, it's, it's triggering something in me. And I'm not sure what that thinking is that you were able to tap into there, but it's very interesting. I think it's uh, because our, our people uh, communicated by emojis. Mm-hmm. The the uh, archaeologists called them pictographs, mm -hmm. or uh, and uh, uh, but those uh, those figures that 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 you see uh, that are um, uh, that appear to be uh, sort of stick figures, mm -hmm. they're actually emojis that are conveying a lot of information yeah. from the past. True enough. Uh, we, we had writing, mm -hmm. but we had the kind of writing that technology has now developed for, uh, uh, for our generation. Because when, think of it, you, you make a circle, you put two dots in a little half arc, and that emoji, happy face, conveys an incredible amount of information. And that's what 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 uh, is triggering in your own mind. Of course, we're indigenous people. That is how we communicated for 100,000 years in this continent. This and idea of, of an alphabet, of, of reducing everything down to 26 characters, is only, I think, about 4,000 years old. It's brand new in, in historical terms. But emojis, pictographs, mm -hmm. have been with us forever. Yeah, and they speak on an international scale. Exactly. You know, uh, it's interesting. It, also, it brings me back to something else you said about North American thinking and indigenous thinking that has been here on this continent for hundreds of thousands of yes. years, as you mentioned, and the Europeans coming over not understanding the language of North America. That's right. The very basic level. Yeah. However, they or they borrow mm -hmm. uh, so much of our language to introduce it into English. It's uh, something that that um, you know has made English so popular throughout the world because it has that capacity mm -hmm. to uh, sponge up other other terms and language and, and thoughts and so on. Uh, but you know, the indigenous languages are uh, are poetic, and I think that. For me, uh, uh, because I, I never learned an indigenous language. However, I found that uh, the manner in which poetry uh, is written and conceived is a uh, demonstration of the difference between English and, say, uh, Anishinaabe or... or uh, uh, the uh, Ojibwe, because poetry is metaphor. Mm. It's all metaphor. And then when I, I talk to people who speak the indigenous language, they're speaking in metaphors. They're assembling metaphors together to make words. And I realized, wow, this language that uh, I take English and change it into metaphors, and... The indigenous languages are based on metaphor. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, I think that uh, it's time for us to take another break, but we look forward to coming back and speaking with more 
uh, from you, Dr. Duke Redbird. And uh, also, perhaps we can get you to recite one of those metaphors for us later on in the show. So please, don't go away. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest today is Dr. Duke Redbird, and he is also part of this uh, sort of ongoing uh, uh presentation of sorts down at Ontario Place. So if you're in the area up until mid-October, you can go down and actually speak with uh, Duke Redbird there. He will share some insights with you. He'll talk about the maybe uh, what some of the in, the interpretation of some of the art pieces, I guess, that will be on the, uh, the houseboat that you have set up down there. Yeah, what it is is um, the, um, the the houseboat, it, it's, uh, it's um, a square box on a, on a couple of pontoons. Uh, and um, it has a deck, and I uh, invite people to come and sit on the deck and just chat with me. Mm. And what I'm doing is I'm getting a a really uh, good uh, cross-section of people coming and just engaging with whatever they want to talk about. Often it's not even anything to do with with Indigenous people. uh, People drop by and... They have, you know, a conversation starts, and pretty soon we may be talking philosophy or poetry or uh, tarot cards or uh, uh, what have you, uh, and 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 future. So, uh, because I'm uh, coming from an indigenous lens, there's always an opportunity to throw in an, an indigenous perspective into most conversations. And out of that flows a lot of questions where I find that the public gets very in, in, intrigued because they don't think of us as a people of having all this capacity and knowledge and, and uh, uh, framework references with the continent that we have uh, been privileged to to inherit from our ancestors. And so it's been really interesting. I do it in a in a gentle, kind, compassionate way because I'm not there to to uh, uh, have a lot of debates about the uh, uh, differences between one culture or another culture. In fact, uh, one of the great things about uh, Toronto is that it is a meeting place, and we do have a treaty in Toronto, and the people of Toronto have every uh, uh, right to be here and to participate in the development of Toronto because they did the right thing. They had and do have a treaty with the Mississaugas of the Credit. So Toronto has done what the rest of the country hasn't done, which is to solve the uh, question of ownership and and capacity for sharing. So uh, in Toronto, uh, the people in Toronto are, uh, are, are, are good people because the land itself is a good land. You don't... What's great about Canada, and I've been to other parts of the world, but I don't feel any uh, great blood on this land from from our participation in 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 the country. And what I'm saying is that no great armies marched across and slaughtered everybody and uh, and, and took over one person's land or another person. It wasn't like that. So Canada. And our, our, uh, uh, any time you get outside of the urban area, the land is still fresh. It's still vibrant. It still has that spirit uh, that just lifts you up. Mm. And uh, if we're not careful, we're going to be losing it as we leach into our waterways all the poisons associated with what? Mining. And when you talk to to the the mining people about it, their answer is, look at everything that you have in your life is a result of mining. 
your cell phone, your car, your refrigerator, your uh, uh, the building materials, everything from uh, an urban world comes from mining. So don't blame us if our uh, work involves destroying the waterways and destroying the environment because we're not demanding you give us your money. You give it to us freely as you give your money to Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, uh, uh, you name it, everybody, General Motors, whatever. We give our money freely. There's nobody that makes me buy anything. I'm persuaded to, but we didn't have that before 1492. Mm. Duke, you, uh, you speak about so many things that, that uh, bring so many other questions to mind that we could expand on and talk about and keep going, but we're very limited by time, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping uh, uh, that you will come back and, and be uh, perhaps a, a repeat guest with us here, almost like a moment of truth elder here for us, that we can, we can have you back on on a, maybe a monthly basis. It would be great to have you back. Well, I, uh, David, I, I'd be delighted uh, to do that. Um, it it's, uh, it's, uh, would be uh, really um, interesting to see what your audience response is. If uh, there's enough folks out there that would like to have me back on a regular basis, I, I, I'd be delighted to do it. I, I certainly in, enjoy uh, uh, talking with you and having an opportunity to um you know, give my ideas, uh, I, I, uh, their opinions. You know, they, anything can be challenged. But what I really like, and, and <laughs> yes, what, we we know certainly know anything can be challenged. Just looking south of the border, don't. <laughs> we? <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm really looking for in in my, in in uh, in my in my own life is uh, uh, something that when I wrote a poem many many years ago. I wrote this poem about what it means to me to be an indigenous person living in the world that I live in. And, and so the poem goes like this. My moccasins have not walked among the giant forest trees, and my leggings have not brushed against the fern and berry bush, and my medicine pouch has not been filled with roots and herbs and sweetgrass, and my hands have not fondled the spotted fawn, and my eyes have not beheld the golden rainbow of the north, and my hair has not been adorned with the eagle feather. Yet my dreams are dreams of these, my heart is one with them, the scent of them caresses my soul. Jimmy Gwetch, that is the voice of Duke Redbird. You just heard he has been my guest here today on Moment of Truth. And uh, as you just heard him say, he's uh, more than willing to come back and participate in uh, shows in the future. And I certainly look forward to having you back, sir. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and, uh, and, and just exploring some of the ideas that we've been talking about today. And I look forward to uh, continuing that discussion with you in the future. And uh, we will certainly line that up and be able to get you back on uh, when it's convenient for, for you to do so. So, Nyawa Miigwech Wanishi for being here today. And uh, thank you for listening. This is Moment of Truth, and I'm your host, David Moses. Miigwech, David, and blessings. I also want to say Nyawa Miigwech Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain, Nyawa, Miigwech, and thanks for listening.